to Isaiah chapter 5. Isaiah chapter number 5. And I'd like to begin reading in verse number 20. We'll read down to verse number 25. Isaiah chapter number 5, verse number 20. The Bible says, Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil, that put darkness for light and light for darkness, that put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe unto them that are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. Woe unto them that are mighty to drink wine and men of strength to mingle strong drink, which justify the wicked for reward. And by the way, that's what follows alcohol in a society. Is they begin to justify the wicked for reward. There'll be people tell you it's okay to partake and drink alcohol and indulge and engage in that. Wow, they want your money. We've, we've seen over the past few weeks, they'll, they'll tell anybody anything to try to get your money. Doesn't matter how untrue it might be, which justify the wicked for reward. And here's what they do. They take away the righteousness of the righteous from him. They say, well, it won't hurt our society, but it always does. It always destroys lives. Therefore, as the fire devoureth the stubble, and the flame consumeth the chaff, so their root shall be as rottenness, and their blossom shall go up as dust. Because they have cast away the law of the Lord of hosts and despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. Therefore is the anger of the Lord kindled against His people, and He hath stretched forth His hand against them and hath smitten them. And the hills did tremble, and their carcasses were torn in the midst of the streets. For all this, His anger is not turned away, but His hand is stretched out still." Let's pray together. Father, we love you this morning. Thank you for letting us be in the house of God. I pray that you give clarity to my thoughts and to my words. Help me to preach the word of God, not my opinion or perspective, but the authoritative truth of your word. And I pray that, Lord, inasmuch as it's powerful, Lord, we know that your word's powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, dividing asunder to the soul and spirit. I pray that it would do a work in our hearts and minds, that you would arrest our attention today and do an eternal work for your glory and for our good. We'll be sure to thank you for it. Lord, watch over those young people at the park. Help the workers. Give them strength. Give them sharpness. And, and Lord, give them caution and give them wisdom. I pray that you'd work and move in their midst just as you will this morning in ours. And we'll be sure to thank you. Lord, we love you. And we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. When we come to Isaiah chapter number 5, we have approached a chapter that is full of woes. We have, in fact, just read three of them in our short text But the woes that Isaiah pronounces are not limited to merely these three that we've read. In fact, throughout the entirety of the chapter and even throughout the rest of the book of Isaiah, over and over and over again, the Word of God will pronounce woe to the people of God. Now, the word woe is a word of caution. It is a word of warning. It is meant to turn the unrighteous from their unrighteousness and to call them to repentance and to obedience. Obedience to God. And over and over and over again in this splendid and blessed book, we find yet this fearsome word, woe, pronounced time and time again. In our short text alone that we've read this morning, there are three woes that are proclaimed. Notice them with me.
me, verse 20, we find that God pronounces woe to their deception. He says, woe unto them that call evil good and good evil, that put darkness for light and light for darkness, that put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. You know, I didn't know Isaiah was reading the New York Times today. Amen? I didn't know he had checked the Internet for the news feed. I didn't know he had glimpsed into our present world today because there couldn't be a more apt condemnation than the one that Isaiah gives here because we're living in a day when truth has been abandoned, when uh, when uh, objectivity has been jettisoned, when facts have been trampled underfoot. We live in a day where it seems like the double speak, the spin, the propaganda, and the warp is louder than it has ever been in society. We live in a day today where if you stand against degeneracy and debauchery, when you even make plain spoken, bold statements. I see in somebody the other day, you see these news articles. I don't know if you ever see them, but every news article nowadays is the biggest deal that's ever happened. And it's never just a person said something. It's always this person destroyed this other person, you know. And I saw this news article the other day, and it's about this fellow that was on Dr. Phil. And I don't watch Dr. Phil. I don't know if you watch Dr. Phil. I don't care whether you watch Dr. Phil. I just want it known I don't watch Dr. Phil. Amen? But apparently there was a fellow that was on Dr. Phil, and 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 they were having these uh, transgenders that were on there. Now, transgender people are mentally ill people. Uh, there, it is a mental illness, and that has been a known fact for a hundred years. It's a condition, gender dysphoria. That is a known, obvious statement uh, that's not controversial in any way, shape, fashion, and form. Probably a great many of them today that proclaim to be transgender, transvestites, whatever they uh, choose to label themselves, uh, many of them today uh, may not even necessarily suffer from a clinical illness, but they have engaged in a form of debauchery and a form of attention-seeking and a form of control and abuse over others in society that has appealed to them. And this article was about this fella, and it says this fella got on Dr. Phil, and he destroyed him. And I thought, boy, what did he say, man? Is he going to sound like some kind of hacking North Carolina mountain preacher? I mean, my soul, what did he say to him? You know, did he cuss him or something? And I, 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 so I, I, I did what they wanted me to do. I clicked on the article. <laughs> and I looked on it. And apparently on Dr. On, on the Dr. Phil show or whatever, they had transgender people on there. And, and this fellow said, these are not uh, men. These are women dressed as men. That's him destroying them? I mean, a little toddler could tell you the same thing. I'm merely saying we're living in a society today where saying something like that is considered a radical statement. We're living in a society today where that's controversial. By the way, it wasn't controversial even five years ago to say that. That's how quickly they're, 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 they're shaping the narrative of society around us. Let me tell you something. They can try to proclaim good, evil, and evil good, but it don't change that evil is evil and good is good. And there's going to come a day they're going to have to reckon with a holy, immutable, unchangeable God that does not bend to their propaganda and their conceptions. By the way, we find this much active even in Christianity, where much that is obviously transparently carnal, wicked, modeled after the world's system, the world's philosophy, and the world's appetites is called Christianity. We may try as we will to redefine truth, but we can't change truth. I like what Paul said about it. He said, nothing can be spoken against the truth before the truth. 
You know what he meant when he said that? You can, you can cuss the truth, but it'll still be true. You can criticize the truth, but it'll still be true. You can claim, you can lie against the truth, but it'll still be true. Doesn't matter what you do, truth stays true. A woe is pronounced to their deception. Verse 21, he describes and pronounces a woe to their delusions. He says, woe unto them that are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. And by the way, these two things go hand in hand. When a man contradicts the word of God, he's saying, I'm smarter than God is. And so it should be no wonder that in this deeply narcissistic society that we live in, in which we're all just bit players in someone else's narrative they've woven gloriously of their own hero tale, that they would believe that they are, they are incapable of wrong, error, or mistake. I'll tell you this, there's come to date. God, listen, God's not impressed by how many followers we've got. God's not impressed by how much influence we've got. And we can, we can build ourselves up to be something we're not. But God says, I'll just tear you right down and show you to be what you are. He pronounces woe to their deception, woe to their delusions. Verses 22 and 23, he describes woe to their drunkenness. He says this, woe unto them that are mighty to drink wine and men of strength to mingle strong drink. You know, can I just pause there and say this? When a person drinks alcohol, they're seeking to find a strength that they don't have apart from it. That's where their strength. You all right this morning? Oh, listen, heaven help if we can't preach against liquor in an independent Baptist church. Let me just go ahead and just draw the line. I'm against alcohol. And really, it don't matter whether I'm against it. God's against it. It is a sin. And you say, well, preacher, you know, just socially and casually. We don't do that with any other sin, do we? Uh, Listen, I'm, I'm, I'm not a hard murderer. I just sometimes I socially murder. I mean, it's not something I don't, I don't have to murder every day. But sometimes when I'm having a good steak, I like to murder someone. I just, and my murdering don't really hurt nobody else. You know, I just, it's my personal preference. I just, you don't have to do it. Isn't it amazing? People always engaged in sin always want to give us the privilege and permission to not engage in their sin. Till they don't give us permission anymore. Till you're a hate monger for not endorsing and encouraging their sin. Then all of a sudden things change. You say, well, preacher, you know, I just, I, I'm, I'm not a serial fornicator. It's just, you know, occasionally, just casually, you know, a social fornicator, you know. We don't do that with any other sin, but somehow we've done that with alcohol. The Bible's abundantly clear. We're not to look upon it. We're not to touch it. We're not to have any part in it. Not just we're not to overindulge. And we can have all the discussions you want about the terminology wine and strong drink. Strong drink is an unequivocal term for that which is alcoholic. Wine, the word literally means the, the, the blood or fruit of, of the grapevine. And, and, and it, the vast majority of times in your Bible is referring not to something that is fermented. Fermentation, by the way, is the corruption process. Not something that's fermented, but something that was fresh. And people say, well, preacher, the Lord turned water into wine. He did. My preacher, I like the way he answered this. Somebody asked him one time, said, but didn't Jesus turn water into wine? Uh, They mean a Merlot when they say that. Didn't he turn water into wine? And my preacher said, well, what kind of wine did he make? And they said, well, what do you mean, preacher? And he said, well, what kind of wine? Was it new wine or was it old wine? They said, well, I guess it was new wine. He said, that's right. New wine is not alcoholic. It's not gone through the decaying and fermenting and corrupting process. And so God pronounces a woe to the drunkenness of society. And certainly when men engage in alcohol, it's a, it's a form of escapism. It's a means to find some peace they can't find without it, some strength they can't muster without it, some semblance and steadiness of mind that they don't contain apart from it, whatever their excuses may be. And we may have a society that is uh, addicted and drunk on drunkenness. And 
we do have a society like that. But I've got news for you. It don't matter how it's normalized. It's still against the Scripture. It says, Woe unto them that are mighty to drink wine, and men of strong strength to mingle strong drink. Here's what it leads to, which justify the wicked for reward and take away the righteousness of the righteous from him. Here's what they do. They fall in with that first crowd. They take the wicked and make them righteous, and they take the righteous and make them unrighteous. They take all that's good out of a man's life and rob him from it, and then they take all that is wicked and depraved and is debauched and elevate and exalt that to be something glorious. He pronounces woe to their drunkenness. In verse 25, this condemnation of the house of Israel reaches a fever pitch. He says this in verse 25, Therefore is the anger of the Lord kindled against His people. And He hath stretched forth His hand against them and hath smitten them. And the hills did tremble and their carcasses were torn in the midst of the streets. For all this His anger is not turned away but his hand is stretched out still. I want to preach to you on this thought. His hand is stretched out still. This is fascinating language. At the same time, it speaks not only of judgment, but also of mercy. Isaiah no doubt had in mind the hand of God's judgment being extended against Israel. And yet we find that at the same time that his hand was stretched out in judgment, his arm was not shortened that it could not save. And we find in this phrase a beautiful picture of how God deals with those that are living in disobedience to Him. Now, what had initially caused His anger? Isaiah would catalog a myriad of sins that Israel had engaged in. But in chapter number 1, he lays forth the chief charge. Verse number 4, he says, A sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, a seed of evildoers, children that are corruptors. He says they have forsaken the Lord. They have provoked the Holy One of Israel unto anger. They are gone away backward. People of Israel had turned their back on the God of the Bible. They had turned to the wickedness and ways of this world, its idolatry and its debauchery. And God in chapter 5 lays out this series of charges and crimes. But even in that great statement of condemnation, He's reminding them that there's still hope, there's still help, if they'll only turn to Him. It's interesting, this phrase at the end of Chapter 5, verse 25, for all this his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. Did you know there are five times in the book of Isaiah that God repeats this statement word for word? Now, when God tells us something once, it's worthy of our careful attention. I understand the importance of the law of first mention. I understand the importance of in the mouth of two or three witnesses. But can I say this? And I would even endorse this thought. There's no single verse doctrines. But I'll tell you this. If all we had was a single verse, it would be worthy of our attention. If God said something once, once ought to have been enough. But God doesn't just say it once. Five different times God makes this statement. I would say to you this morning, when God repeats something five times, He's telling us we better set up and listen. We better pay attention. There were times in the Old Testament God sought to get a man's attention. He'd call his name, but he'd call it twice. And when God makes this statement five times, He's saying this is no passing statement. This is no cursory thought. But this is something that is fundamental, foundational, and integral to your well-being. When we look at this statement in its own right, we find that it basically divides itself into three portions. The first portion is this, for all this. The second portion is his hand is not, or his anger is not 
turned away. And the third portion is, but his hand is stretched out still. Take a moment with me this morning and let's carefully consider this statement and what these three portions mean and what they teach us about the Lord and about our lives. Whenever Isaiah says, for all this, He's describing the poured out judgment of God upon his people. To give you a little bit of background, uh, at the time that Isaiah writes these things, the divided house of Israel from the house of Judah are both still standing. They are not united. They split from each other after the death of Solomon during the reign of his son Rehoboam. But they are still two independent nations. The empire of Assyria has uh, marched and stomped onto the world stage. And they are the big dog on the block. They are looming and threatening the northern kingdom of the house of Israel. And Isaiah, though he lives in Judah, and though much of the book of Isaiah would be focused on Judah, and though even in these verses there are passages that apply to Judah, the majority of these opening chapters focus on the house of Israel, the northern kingdom. And what he's doing is warning them that if they won't turn to God, the Assyrian behemoth will overrun them. God will use the Assyrians to judge them and to destroy them. Now, you've probably already read it and you probably already know it, but spoiler alert, that's exactly what would happen. The Assyrian Empire would come in. They would sack the city of Samaria. They would destroy the northern kingdom of Israel and they would annihilate their national identity. But listen, before they ever got to that place, here's what you'll find is the pleading voice of God begging them not to go that way. Aren't you glad we have a merciful God? He don't just let people go unchallenged and unchecked down a path of destruction. But if they'll stop and pay attention, they'll say that and see that many of those things that they cursed, many of those things that they dreaded, many of those things that they mourned and lamented were actually God trying to get their attention before it was everlasting too late. In this phrase, for all this, we find the terror of His chastening. Now, five times we said this is found here in the book of Isaiah. And let's just look at each of them very quickly because in each of these statements, we find another step God took to try to get their attention. And in your life, if you have sin in your life, if you'll open your eyes, you'll see that God's trying to get your attention. He is allowing things in your life to try to get your attention. What did He allow in their life? We've read it already, but notice verse 24 with me. The Bible says this, Therefore... As the fire devoureth the stubble, and the flame consumeth the chaff, so their root shall be as rottenness, and their blossom shall go up as dust, because they have cast away the law of the Lord of hosts, and despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. Therefore is the anger of the Lord kindled against His people, and He hath stretched forth His hand against them, and hath smitten them, and the hills did tremble, and their carcasses were torn in the midst of the streets. For all this, His anger is not turned away, but His hand is stretched out still. Let me say, number one, in his chastening, there was no protection. God had put a hedge about Israel for, lo, these many long years. He describes them earlier in this chapter as a vineyard that has been planted in a pleasant place, that has been hedged about with a protective wall. But when it should have brought forth sweet grapes, it brought forth wild grapes. And so God says, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down the hedge. I'll invite the devourers to come in. I'll allow them to lay waste to this vineyard. And when He talks about them as chaff, when He talks about them as stubble, when He talks about the fire devouring them, He's describing how though he had held the nations at bay, he would allow Assyria to come in and be the instrument of his chastening. Can I tell you this? You want a rough life. You just start living in sin. 
You have no idea how much God protects you. You listen to me this morning, you have no idea how much God protects you. I'm often reminded of the providential and protective hand of God when I drive in Knoxville, Tennessee. <laughs> it's got worse. I mean, it's so much worse than that. I don't even know. I don't even know. We don't even have enough. They can't build more lanes. I guess we're just Atlanta now. That's just the way it is. And you drive, and somebody said, ooh. <laughs> I know, brother, you pray. Amen. I will drive up and down the road. Did it ever occur to you that every day of your life, if you drive, you get on a road and you pass thousands of cars divided only by a double yellow line and common sense? You understand that every day, and you can get on the news in a city the size of Knoxville, and every day you'll find people shot, people stabbed, you'll find devastating and fatal car wrecks taking place. Every day of your life, you get on social media, you'll find people stricken with severe and fierce diseases. But for the grace of God... It would be you or me. It's a foolish thing to think we've nestled ourselves into the hills and mountains and crags and rocks and caves of our own security and strength and ability. The reality is this, were it not for the mercy of God, we would be consumed. Hey, but His mercies are new. If it were not for the Lord, we'd be consumed. But His mercies, they're new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. When you begin to walk contrary to God, here's what he said in the book of Leviticus chapter 25. He said, you walk contrary to me, I'll walk contrary to you. All that protection you've enjoyed can be removed in a moment. You say, well, God must hate me. No, God loves you. And he knows it would be better. It would be better for you to turn than for you to sour. It'd be, it'd be better for you to be broken than for you to be bitter. It would be better for you to be crippled than for you to be carnal. It would be better for you to go through trouble than to lose your testimony. And so he says, I will remove the protection from your life. Turn with me to chapter number 9 very quickly. Chapter number 9. Three of these statements or the, the occasion of these statements are found in the ninth chapter of the book of Isaiah. There's some beautiful passages in Isaiah chapter number 9, glorious visions and sweeping, uh, you know, panoramas of the Messiah and of His uh, majesty and of His government. But I want you to notice what God says to Israel. Beginning in verse number 8, notice what it says. The Lord sent a word into Jacob, and it hath lighted upon Israel. And all the people shall know, even Ephraim and the inhabitant of Samaria. Now, Ephraim was one of the tribes of Israel, but it was also a name that God used for the kingdom of Israel when they were living in disobedience to the Lord. Samaria is their capital. So he's saying that, that all the people shall know, even Ephraim, the whole northern kingdom, and the inhabitant of Samaria, even those that are nesting safely in their capital, that say in the pride and stoutness of heart, the bricks are fallen down, but we will build with hewn stones. The sycamores are cut down, but we will change them into cedars. They had experienced some, some military and martial turmoil, and they had had some of their cities captured and some of their walls torn down. And instead of heeding the warning from the Lord and turning to God, they said, no, we'll just rebuild again in our own strength. Verse 11 says, Therefore the Lord shall set up the adversaries of resin against him. The Israelites had entered into a confederacy with the Syrians to try to thwart the Assyrian threat. And God says, I'm going to set up the adversaries of resin, the king of Syria, against him and join his enemies together. Then he says this, The Syrians before and the Philistines behind, and they shall devour Israel with open mouth. For all this his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. You say, preacher, what happens when a man begins to live in disobedience to God? A person that has been saved, they've been born again, they know the Lord is their Savior, they begin to live in disobedience. Well, first, there's no protection. Then number two, we see there was no path of escape. 
He says in verse number 12, the Syrians before, they were the foes of Israel, though they had entered a temporary alliance. The Philistines behind, they were the perpetual foes of Israel. And he says, and they shall devour Israel with open mouth. In other words, they try to run, there's nowhere to run. They try to turn, there's nowhere to turn. There's no path of escape. You ever gone through a period of time in your life, and you don't even have to say amen to this if you don't want to, uh, but have you ever gone through a period of disobedience to God in your life, and it seemed like everything went wrong? And it seemed like the harder that you tried to dig out, the deeper the hole got. It's not by accident. Hey, in the book of Hosea, pronouncing judgment against this same northern kingdom, God would say that He would put a wall, a hedge of thorns about His people. That they would try to turn one way or the other, but everywhere they turned, they would be thwarted. Everywhere they turned would be an impenetrable barrier. Everywhere they turned, they would find no escape from their troubles. People say sometimes in life, well, preacher, it just feels like everyone's conspiring against me. Maybe not everyone, but maybe someone. Maybe not everyone, but maybe someone. Truth of the matter is, you better not care about everyone, but you sure enough better care about that someone. Because if he has set you up with no path of escape, here's what he's trying to do. He's trying to get you to stop and look up. It's funny. They couldn't go forward. They couldn't go back. But here's what they could do. They could look up, but they were too stubborn to do so. There would be no pleasure. Look down at verse 17. We find another occasion here in chapter 9. He says, therefore, the Lord shall have no joy in their young men, neither shall have mercy on their fatherless and widows, for everyone is an hypocrite and an evildoer, and every mouth speaketh folly. For all this his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. God says this, I'll have no joy in you. You know, the book of Nehemiah says this, that the joy of the Lord is our strength. Hey, the only way we have strength is by having the joy of the Lord. Uh, for the believer, it is not the joy of self, it's not the joy of prosperity, it's not the joys of, uh, of means, but it's the joy of the Lord that gives us joy in our life. Christ told them in the New Testament, He said, I'll give you joy, and your joy shall no man take. The joy that is of you, men can take. But the joy of the Lord, no man can take from you. But here's what He says in this passage. He says, nobody can take it from you, but I can take it from you. Let me say it this way, there was no pleasure when they were living outside of God's will. I tell you, man, I've never met anyone as miserable in my life as a Christian out of the will of God. Lost people can be happy in sin. They don't have joy in sin, but they, they can be happy in sin. I mean, they can live in sin and it don't bother them. But you want to meet a miserable person. You meet somebody that's shown up born again, but is walking contrary to the Lord, and they'll be a miserable person. You, God won't let you have enjoyment. He won't let you have pleasure in life when you're living in disobedience. Look down at verse 19. The Bible says this, through the wrath of the Lord of hosts is the land darkened, and the people shall be as the fuel of the fire. No man shall spare his brother. He says not only will there be enemies from the outside, but once that fire is kindled, they won't need enemies from the outside. They'll consume one another. They'll be the fuel for the fire. He shall snatch on the right hand and be hungry. And he shall eat on the left hand and they shall not be satisfied. They shall eat every man the flesh of his own arm. In other words, he'll try to steal from his neighbor and he won't find any satisfaction. He'll go to the other side and try to, and won't find any satisfaction. He'll eat the flesh of his own arm. In other words, finding satisfaction in his own self and he'll find no satisfaction. Listen to the sad state that the northern kingdom would be in. It says this, Manasseh, Ephraim. And Ephraim, Manasseh, and they together shall be against Judah. For all this, his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. 
Now there's an interesting idiom being used in verse number 21 when he says Manasseh Ephraim. It's almost like a referee announcing fighters in a prize fight. He's saying in this corner there's Manasseh, in this corner there's Ephraim. In this corner is Ephraim, in this corner is Manasseh. And then he says not only do they hate each other, but they're going to both together turn against Judah, the northern or the southern kingdom. In other words, let's say it this way. Hey, listen, there's no protection. There's no path of escape. There's no pleasure. But there's no peace when you're out of the will of God. We think we're going to have peace. I told them this morning in Sunday school, we was, we was preaching and teaching through the book of Ephesians. and I've never, in 13 years of pastoring, I've never met anybody that got out of church that didn't think they would be just as spiritual and just as happy out of church as they were in church. Everyone I've ever met has thought they'd get out of church, they'd keep praying, they'd keep reading their Bible, they'd keep witnessing. They thought they'd get out of church, they'd be just as happy, they'd be just as content, they'd have the same amount of joy. And I have never in 13 years seen that work out for anyone. Fact is, you get out of, of church, you'll find that contention, discord, conflict will begin to consume your life. I'll tell you for my own self, can I just, I'll make conf- confession that somebody said was good for the soul. Amen? I don't know if that's true or not, but we're going to find out. Can I, I just, I'll make confession this morning. When I'm out of the will of God, I'm not worth shooting. I'm terrible to be around. I mean, I'm just going to be honest with you. I mean, you think you hate me now. You ought to find me when I'm not walking with God. I mean, I'm insufferable to be around. And I will tell you that when I've allowed sin in my life, I can see it in my home. You're listening to me. Me and my wife have no peace. Me and my children have no peace. My wife and my children have no peace. Why? Because I have no peace with the Lord. I'm the head of the home. And it's my job to administer peace into my home by having peace from the Lord. And if I don't have peace with the Lord, now you say, well, preacher, what if you have the peace of the Lord and your wife don't? Well, it's rough, I guess. But God giveth grace. (laughs) I will tell you this. Her disobedience to the Lord doesn't even disrupt our house the way my disobedience to the Lord does. Why? Because I'm the head of the home. I'm not just the head of the home in terms of authority. I'm the head of the home in terms of spirituality. And by the way, let me say this. Hey, listen, ladies. It don't matter how dumb your husband is. Let him be the spiritual head of your home. You'll be the better for it. I didn't just say the authoritative head of your home. I said the spiritual head of your home. You say, well, I got more sense than him. Well, probably, although you married him, so that's questionable. (laughs) We don't follow the order of the home because people are well-equipped for it. We follow the order of the home because the Word of God commands it. And what God commands, God blesses. You might be amazed if you'll let him spiritually lead the home how spiritual he'll become. Why? Because God will bless you being obedient to the order of God. I'm the spiritual head of the home. You know what that means? If I got no peace with God, the home doesn't have peace with God. And I'll tell you this, when I'm living in sin, I have no peace. Look with me in chapter number 10, just a page or so over. And notice this final one, and then we'll move on. I'll say a couple things and we'll be done. Chapter number 10, verse number 1 says this, Woe unto them that decree unrighteous decrees and that right grievousness which they have prescribed. One of these days, God's going to have something to say to Congress. One of these days, God's going to have something to say to Congress and to governments. It's funny. We somehow think governments are going to escape. And I don't, I don't expect men to ever hold governments accountable. But one of these days, God will. He's going to line up those sheep and those goats, and He's going to separate them. He's going to have something to say to these nations. Woe unto them that decree unrighteous decrees and that write grievousness which they have prescribed, to turn aside the needy from judgment and to take away the right from the poor of my people 
that widows may be their prey and that they may rob the fatherless. And what will ye do in the day of visitation? That day of visitation, that ain't Tuesday nights when we load up on a 15 passenger to go door knocking, amen? The day of visitation is the day when God shows up. That's what it means. That's, oh, that, that's why Christ said in the New Testament when the women wept for Him as He, as he walked to Jerusalem uh, and He said, Daughters of Jerusalem, weep not for Me, uh, but weep for yourselves. He stood over the hill and observed Jerusalem and He said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets, how oft would I have gathered thee under My wings as a mother hen uh, doth her chicks and thou wouldest not because thou knewest not the times of thy visitation. God showed up in Israel. They didn't know it. He was born in a manger in Bethlehem. They didn't know it. Visitation is the day that God shows up. God says, what will ye do in the day of visitation and in the desolation which shall come from far? To whom will ye flee for help and where will ye leave your glory? Notice verse 4. Without me, they shall bow down under the prisoners and they shall fall under the slain. For all this, his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. Two of the scariest words in your Bible are those first two words. Without me. See, when you're living out of the will of God, there's no protection, there's no path of escape, there's no pleasure, there's no peace. But the worst part of it is there's no presence. You say, well now, wait a minute, preacher. He'll never leave me or forsake me. That's true. Can I teach you something this morning? There's a difference between the express presence of God and the experiential presence of God. You say, well, preacher, he'll never leave me nor forsake me. Well, let me just go ahead and take a little air out of your balloon. He is omnipresent. He is everywhere. You say, preacher, he's right with me. Yeah, me too. And everywhere. He is God. He is everywhere. And it's true, he will never leave us in, nor forsake us in the sense that we are eternally knit and yoked to him. We are justified fully through the cross of Calvary and we have been made fellow heirs with joint heirs with Jesus Christ. That's all true. That's the express presence of God. It's never going to go anywhere. But you're a fool if you don't think there's a difference between Him being there and you knowing He's there. There's the experiential presence of God. It's dwelling and walking in the presence of God. It's sensing and feeling the presence of God. In other words, He says this, I will always have my eye on Israel. I'm an omnipresent God. I will always be everywhere at all times, at all moments, throughout all time. But I'll no longer bless you with the feeling and sense and encouragement and strength of my presence. He says, I will leave and I will leave you to your destruction. Let me say it in no uncertain terms. If you're saved by the grace of God, you'll never lose that salvation. There's nothing you can do. If you feel sorry about it now, tough. You're going to heaven, like it or not. And you'll probably, and with that attitude, God will probably sit you next to me. And then we'll both be miserable in heaven. Amen? No, the fact is, once we're saved, we're always saved. God will never take that salvation away. You say, but preacher, what if I lose it? You can't lose it. You didn't buy it. It don't belong to you. It belongs to Him. But I will tell you that if you walk out of the will of God, you'll not enjoy the sense and strength of His presence. One of the scariest passages in the Old Testament is in the book of Hosea. Hosea may very well have been contemporary with Isaiah. We don't know for sure. But Hosea was certainly uh, prophesying to this same ungodly northern kingdom. 
And he describes how that God would do so many things to try to plead with Israel to turn back to him. And he would go to extreme measures to try to get their attention. And listen to what he says in Hosea chapter 5 verse 12. He says this, Therefore will I be unto Ephraim. Ephraim's the name of the northern kingdom when they're living in disobedience. Therefore will I be unto Ephraim as a moth and to the house of Judah as rottenness. Here's what he says, I'll begin to consume away from the inside. In the secret places, in the dark places, not exposed to human eye, everything will look fine on the outside, but on the inside, I'll eat away at you. Verse 14, he says this, For I will be unto Ephraim as a lion, and as a young lion to the house of Judah, I, even I, will tear and go away. I will take away, and none shall rescue him. He says, not just from the inside out, but now even the outside, I will tear and I will try to do something to get your attention. Then he says in verse number 15, terrifying, he says this, I will go and return to my place till they acknowledge their offense and seek my face. In their affliction, they will seek me early. God says, I'll consume you. There'll be, there'll be consumption in your life, but that won't do it. There'll be carnage in your life, but that won't do it. So he says, finally, I'll just walk away. And you won't enjoy my protection, my peace, my pleasure. You won't have any of those things in your life, and you'll see what a hard world that it really, truly is. You say, preacher, are you saying God's going to give up on us? No. Listen. Mmm. God may give you over to some things without giving up on you. God may give you over to some things without giving up on you. Uh, we say, well, preacher, I just want a little bit of the world. He may make you drink your fill of it. Preacher, I just want to taste sin. He may make you eat the whole buffet. He may let you taste it till it turns to ash in your mouth and bitterness in your belly. He says, I will go and I will not protect you. See, the truth is, they paint it up on the commercials But here's what it looks like for the child of God. When you live in sin, there's no protection. There's no path of escape. There's no pleasure. There's no peace. And there's no presence of God in your life. In this phrase, for all this, what does Isaiah mean for all this? For all this chastening, for all this sorrow, for all this heartache, it says this, his anger is not turned away. Now, I don't know about you, but if my life's not right with God, I want to know how to get my life right with God. If God's angry with me, I want to figure out how to get God unangry with me. I want to do something to try to assuage this problem, to try to satisfy and mitigate His anger in my life. And I began to think not just of the terror of His chastening, but in this phrase, His anger is not turned away. Here's what Isaiah is saying. He's saying they've been through all this and God's still angry. They've experienced all this and God's still angry. They've lost all this and God's still angry. His anger is turned not away. And I began to think about the turning of His anger. How can I get right with God if I'm not right with God? I thought about some things that don't turn His anger. I don't even have case text verses for it, although you come find me, I'll give them to you later. But just common sense tells us this. Number one, they went through troubles. You wouldn't find people suffered more than they had suffered. By the time that the smoke cleared from the Assyrian war machine, there was nothing left. I mean, you understand that when, when Nebuchadnezzar in, in, in 596 B.C. came and sacked the city of Jerusalem, there was something left. 
He had torn down the walls. He had destroyed the temple. But the poor of the land were still there. That's why Jeremiah was still there to record the book of Lamentations. He was a prophet of their of their God in Israel. Why did Nebuchadnezzar care about him? Daniel and his companions had been taken years earlier in that first initial siege that they had laid against Jerusalem. But there was still something left. When they came back 70 years later, there was a foundation. There were there was a land. There was something there. But the northern kingdom was obliterated. There was nothing left. So much so that we find this interesting breed of people in the New Testament. They're called Samaritans. The Bible talks about how the Jews looked with disdain on the Samaritans. Why did they do that? Because the Samaritans were not really in their eyes pure Jews. They were the offspring of whatever Jews had remained adjacent to the land. And the Assyrians that had come in. Sennacherib literally annihilated their public identity. You and I, we, I, I shouldn't say that. There's people in this, in this room that have experienced war. But we've never seen what they went through. I mean, you understand, their little ones dashed against the rocks. Their women with child ripped up. Their women, their wives abused and, and tortured and raped and sold into slavery. I mean, you talk about the severest forms of mutilation and cruelty that the Assyrians promulgated on them. And God looked from heaven at all that trouble, at all that, uh, all those trials, at all those problems, and He said, it doesn't turn my anger. Sometimes we think this thing of Christianity is a suffering competition. We think if I go through suffering, that makes me more spiritual. Some people suffer because they're spiritual. Some people suffer because they're stupid. And some people suffer because they're stubborn. And I'll tell you this, just going through heartaches and trials, that doesn't turn the anger of God. You understand that God watches the troubles of this world every day from heaven and that holds no currency with Him? Troubles do not turn His anger away. I thought about this. No doubt they wept a lot of tears throughout those years. No doubt they wept for their dead. They wept for the life that once was. They wept for the pain they were going through. But for all this, His anger is not turned away. Hey, troubles don't turn God's anger. Tears don't turn God's anger. You listen to me? We think if we just feel sorry about, about our experiences, if we just feel bad about what we're having to go through, that that'll turn the anger of God. That's not true. You listen to me? That's not true. It's not enough to be sorry over the effects of sin. We have to be sorry over the substance of sin. They were weeping. Why were they weeping? Because their children were dead. Why were they weeping? Because their, their families were abused and mutilated. Why were they weeping? Because their wealth had been consumed. They weren't weeping because they were sinners and had, had, had transgressed against a holy God. Their tears were for their own troubles. And God said, that doesn't turn my anger. So what does turn His anger? Well, uh, the book of Proverbs has the answer to this. And by the way, the book of Proverbs, written many long years before the book of Isaiah, they knew this. And Proverbs chapter 1 tells us how to turn the anger of God. It says this, How long, you simple ones, will you love simplicity? And the scorners delight in their scorning, and fools hate knowledge. Turn you at my reproof. Behold, I will pour out my spirit unto you. I will make known my words unto you. Because I have called, and you refused. I have stretched out my hand, and no man regarded. But ye have said it not all my counsel, and would none of my reproof. Preacher, I'm going through some of these things. God, He's chastening me. I know the Lord's displeased with me. I know there's things wrong in my life. And I've gone through heartache and I've gone through trials. Isn't that enough? No. Preacher, I've wept tears over over the, 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 the pain that I've experienced. Isn't that enough? Nope. Troubles don't do it. 
Tears don't do it. Preacher, what turns the anger of God? Turning turns the anger of God. He says, turn ye at my reproof. Boy, we have a low opinion of God. We think he's some sadist sitting up in heaven, smiling, laughing, giggling, and getting pleasure out of our heartache and our suffering. But nothing could be further from the truth. The Bible tells us, hey, listen, child of God, he's touched with the feelings of our infirmities. Anything he puts you through, he puts himself through. And he would not do that were it not that he was trying in most desperate fashion to get your attention. Not so that he can gather your tears. Not so that he can giggle at your troubles. But so he can get you to turn from your wicked way. I would say this, we see the turning. of you still with me this morning? I need them to get them kids back from the park so somebody will amen me. So somebody will help me preach a little bit this morning. I see not only the terror of his chastening and the turning of his anger, but I see a final thought, and I just want to mention it and be done. I see the testimony of his mercy. For all this, his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. I thought about the idea of perspective. Tell you something interesting. I'll preach on it one of these days. But I was looking up back at this. I was preaching on a blessed life on, on Sunday nights. And I looked up the word blessing or blessed or bless in the Bible. Wanted to find the first time that it's ever used. You know, the first time it's ever used when God created the creatures of the sea. And all the fishermen said, bless the Lord. <laughs> but did you know if you study that word for blessing in the Bible, do you know it's not always translated bless? Sometimes it's translated some other ways. The most unusual way that I found it to be translated, are you listening carefully? You know, there's times that that word means bless. There's other times, like in Job chapter number 2, when Job's wife looked at him and said, Dost thou still retain thine integrity? Curse God and die. Same word is used for curse as for blessing. I'll preach this at some point. You're getting a sneak preview. You ready? Leave a nickel on the table on your way out the door. But there's a lot of things in our life that it's a matter of how we look at it, whether it's a blessing or whether it's a cursing. And I will tell you this. When I look at God's stretched out hand, you can look at it and you can say, well, God's hand is against me. He's still angry with me. Or you can look at it and say, God's hand's against me. He's still not done with me. I don't know about you, when I'm done with somebody, I'm done with them. Like, change my phone number, done with them. Like, turn the porch light off when they drive by, done with them. God's still dealing with you, He ain't done with you. And so when I read this statement, His hand is stretched out still, I find it, you say, preacher, it's the hand of judgment. Yes, but the hand that brings judgment also offers mercy. And if God's dealing with you, He's not done with you. And so what does the stretched out hand mean? I thought of three things. I would say this, number one, there's still hope while the hand is stretched out. <laughs> I like what Isaiah 48, 9 says, For my name's sake will I defer mine anger, and for my praise will I refrain for thee that I cut thee not off. Say, preacher, I've gone too far. I, I hate to burst your bubble, but he wasn't going to forgive you for your sake in the first place. <laughs> Preacher, I'll just mess up again. I don't mean to bruise your ego. But God was never going to have mercy on you because He expected you to live perfectly anyway. You may have so high of an opinion of you that you think never making mistake is somehow within grasp, but God knoweth our frame that we are but dust. And He understands the weakness and frailty of man. And here's the truth of the matter. If God was going to forgive us for us, He wouldn't forgive any of us. 
If God was going to forgive us because we deserved it, wouldn't nobody be forgiven. If God was going to forgive us based on merit or based on our promises, God wouldn't forgive any of it because we ain't earned it and we can't keep it. But listen, here's why He forgives for His own name's sake. Not because you're worthy, because He's worthy. Not because you'll be good, because He is good. Not because you deserve mercy, but because He dispenses mercy. That's why He forgives. And so if His hand is still stretched out, if He's dealing with you in your life, it's not just stretched out in judgment, it's stretched out in mercy. And there's still hope while His hand is stretched out. Not only is there still hope while the hand is stretched out, I'd say this, there's still help while the hand is stretched out. We think of the extending of a hand and we associate it with the idea of help. Very often, even today, we'll use the term, why don't you lend me a hand or give me a hand with this that I'm about to do. And God says this, my hand is against you in judgment, but that same hand that's against you in judgment can also lift you out of your miry pit. I would tell you this, man, you say, preacher, God's mad at me. Uh, God may be angry with you because of your disobedience, but he ain't done with you. And if you'll turn to him, there's still hope, there's still help. And then finally, I'd say this, there's still healing within his hand is stretched out. I like what Isaiah 59, 1 through 2 says. It says, behold, the the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, neither his ear heavy that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated between you and your God and your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. Early in the book of Isaiah, God says, hey, come, let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. I'm not going to dive into the theological depths of it. I understand that's written in the Old Testament, not the New Testament. I understand in the New Testament our sins and iniquities God will remember no more. I also recognize that my disobedience to God disrupts my walk with Him, my fellowship with Him. But can I just remind you that statement, let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, they should be white as snow. We use that to witness to people. It's a precious verse to use to remind the sinner that they're filthy, but they can be made righteous. But it wasn't spoken to lost sinners. It was spoken to the people of Israel. And God's saying, hey, you may be deep in sin, but you ain't got to stay deep in sin. Your life may be messed up, but you ain't got to stay messed up. If you don't hear nothing else I say this morning, hear this. You may be messed up, but you don't have to stay messed up. Your walk with God may be messed up this morning. You may not even be on speaking terms with Him. You may have not felt His presence in months. You may feel bitterness and anger and resentment in your soul. You may feel emptiness and sorrow inside. You may be messed up this morning, but you ain't got to stay messed up this morning. Where His hand is stretched out, there's still healing for your heart. And there's still hope for your soul. And there's still help for your life. Preacher, it's a cruel thing God would stretch His hand out against His people. But however would He rescue us if He didn't stick His hand out in the first place? I'm glad to report to you this morning, His hand is stretched out still. His hand is stretched out still. There's still hope and help and healing if you'll come to Him. Let's bow together this morning. A musician will come and play. The altar's open. Here's what I want to invite you to do. If you've got someone burdened on your heart this morning, And they're in this situation. Life messed up. Walk with God all messed up. Over in the ditch. Everything's a mess in their life. And you can see God trying to get their attention. Won't you slip out of your seat and come down and lift their name up to the Lord this morning? Speak their name to the Lord. And there's no magic in your speaking of, of, of their name. But we have a God that hears and answers prayer. And so come and lift their name up to the Lord. Call them by name to God. I'm praying for this person 
that their heart and their life will be right with you. And then if you're here today, and maybe it's you, you may not be a hundred miles down that road, but you may have taken a step or two. Why don't you come and get that thing right with God this morning? Father, bless this invitation. May it magnify the Lord Jesus. We ask it in His name.